Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. Welcome. So glad that you have joined us and chosen to worship with us this morning. I believe that you are in for a treat this morning, not because of me, but because of the text that we're going into. And I really believe and I'm believing that it's going to be a blessing if you're in this room. And I know last week we went into Psalm 42 as there's many people in our church who are hurting and struggling with different things. And man, I love Psalm 23 and I just, I'm expectant of God to move this morning. But before we get into that, I want to pray over all of these boxes, which thank you church for responding. I mean, you can't even see half the boxes because there's a bunch of them on the floor down here off of the table, but every one of these boxes represents a child somewhere around the world that is going to have a chance to hear the gospel. And not just hear the gospel, but feel the gospel in a tangible way. That they're going to receive something that they cannot get on their own. They're going to receive something that they cannot buy on their own. They're going to receive something that they did not deserve, and that is the gospel. And those boxes, man, I'm just so excited because I believe God's going to use them. So I just want to take a little time before we get going to pray over these boxes. And here's what I ask you to pray for as the weeks go ahead, that God knows every person that's going to receive each one of those boxes. And I just pray that you would... that. You would just pray that God would really meet each person in a real personable and tangible way with the, gospel, with the box that they're going to receive. That there would be no hindrances getting across borders. Um, just that everything that this box needs to do for a child would do it because that's who God is. He's near to the brokenhearted and he reaches out to those who cannot help themselves and that's what those boxes represent. So God, we thank you for what a faithful church. God, I look at all these boxes up here on tables and on the floors, and God, I just thank you for the honor and the privilege it is to be in a place with people who so selflessly give of themselves and so represent your heart, God. So we just pray over each and every one of these boxes. As it goes out, God, as it gets in the mail, as it goes wherever it's going to go, that your hand would go before it and on it. God, we pray for every child that this box represents, God, that you would reach them in a way that only you can, a real tangible way. God, that every one of these boxes, as they open them, that they would know without a shadow of a doubt that there is a God in heaven who loves them fiercely and is running after them and following them at all costs. God, I pray that for some, these boxes would utterly change a child's life, change their life, and that they see who you are. And God, I just thank you that we have the opportunity to be a part of this because it just brings joy to those kids. God, that they can just light up on Christmas, that they can know that someone somewhere that they don't even know who or where loves them and cares for them, God. And I pray that that would just bring them such joy in this season. Meet these kids exactly where they're at. And I'm just thankful to be able to be a part, a small part of what you're doing in this so God, we just thank you for these boxes, and we pray a blessing over them. And God, as we enter into your word now, God, I pray for each person in this room that is hurting that you would draw them near. I pray for those who are at the top of the mountain, God, that you would keep them dependent. And God, I pray that you would do what only you can do, 
And that is move in the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls that your spirit would move in a way that only you can, God, because my words are worthless without the power of your spirit. So God, accomplish your work. Would we have open ears and open hearts? Would we be sensitive to conviction where it's needed, where encouragement where it's needed, God? And would you just do such a beautiful thing because you're a beautiful God? We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 23, it's probably the most famous of all psalms. In fact, it may be one of the most quoted and famous passages in all of the Old Testament. Augustine called it the martyr's hymn. And it's very popular in funerals all across the country, and often it's read, and which I get. But at the same time, I'm like, man, why are we reading this psalm that speaks so much to the fullness of life? And sometimes we're like, man, this psalm's all about life after death. No, this psalm is about who God is now, the comfort that he brings now, the God that he is now right here, that you can trust him, that he is a good shepherd. One of the amazing things about it is it's so simple that a child can grasp it, yet it's so deep that a theologian can drown in it. Like, it's crazy, the words of God, how he just moves in ways, like, it just blows my mind. I mean, full disclosure, this week, I studied a lot this week, and some weeks it's just not coming, and I'm going to be fully honest, I still don't exactly know what God's wanting to say through this text. But I know one thing, that it was very clear that we were to be in this text this morning, and that's how God works, but that's the beauty of it, it is not me, it's him, it's his word. And as his spirit moves, he does things that I cannot do. The context of Psalm 23, before we jump into it, is this. Last week, we went through Psalm 42, and we saw this battle that David was having with this desire to praise in one breath, but then this great turmoil and depression in the other, and he just didn't know what to do. He's like, God, I want to praise you. I want to come to you. But at the same time, I am so depressed and my enemies are coming against me and my external circumstances are causing great oppression in my life. I praise you, God. I want to acknowledge and acknowledge that you're good. But in the same breath, I don't know how I can. And sometimes we read Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We just jump in, but we kind of miss what leads up to that. In Psalm 22, we're not going to read it all, but I want to point out a few things that David is dealing with when he writes this psalm. 22 verses 1 and 2, he's dealing with being forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groanings, oh my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer, and night by night, but I find no rest. If you're in this room and you have felt forsaken, David can relate. We go down, he even felt depressed, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make, my mouth, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him, making mockery not just of God, but of David. If you've ever been in a place where you've been depressed, you're in good company this morning. How about lonely? David was also lonely. Verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. You ever been lonely? David was lonely. David relates. Or how about one more, helpless? Maybe this is where you're at this morning. You're in a place that you're helpless, and you don't know what to do, and you feel like God has forgotten about you, and there's no one to help. Verse 14, I'm poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. 
My strength is dried up like a post herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. David felt helpless as well, but then he jumps in later into Psalm 23, which is where we are this morning. And he opens it by saying this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The first thing we need to know is when Lord is in all caps in the Old Testament, it is speaking to Yahweh, this covenant name of God that means I am that I am. We see it in Exodus 3.14 that Moses, or God comes before Moses right before he's about to send him into Egypt to cast all these plagues on the Pharaoh because he did not want to let his people go. And Moses is in this place like, God, I'm really helpless. Like, unless you show up, I don't really know what's going to happen, but I can't go that way. And God says, just tell them that Yahweh has sent you. I am that I am, this covenant name of God. But the amazing thing is, is that David is saying this God of creation, the God of the universe, the judge of all the world, while he is the same God that can cast plagues upon those who come against him, David is also saying in the same breath, this God, this mighty God, he is my shepherd. He's the one that don't, not only protects me, and walks with me. He keeps me from wandering. He leads me to good pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Because any good shepherd, his number one priority is his sheep. David says, this is the same God, my shepherd. He is the one who goes before me. He is the one who protects me. He is the one who walks with me. And David himself would know a lot about what it is to be a shepherd. And he would know a lot about sheep. Because he was one. This man, after God's own heart, started in a pasture, started in a field. And this really, this, this, this monumental moment of when God began to use him started when he pulled him from a pasture and set him before a giant. No one, this man Goliath and this Philistine army was coming before Saul and all the nation of Israel and all the quote-unquote warriors of the day and all the strong muscle men and the hulks. They were all like, hey, no way I'm going after that guy. He's way bigger than I'm willing to bite off. And here's David. He catches word and he comes to Saul and he just comes from this shepherding and from this field. And I want you to hear what he says in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and he took the lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. First thing I want you to know to preface this before we get in is get out of your mind what a shepherd is. Jesus is not this white homeboy with slicked back greased hair holding a harp in one hand and a little lamb in the other just saying, Kumbaya, my Lord, kumbaya. No, he's a fierce warrior. And that's what a shepherd is. A shepherd ain't weak. A good shepherd isn't weak. Because a good shepherd defends his flock. A good shepherd kills those who come against his sheep. And that is who God is. And that's what David had to have been thinking when he's reflecting upon this. He is my shepherd. 
Think about this. This psalm was probably written when David was more extended and lived a lot of life and suffered some pain and some trials and some struggle. This was before he had been the king of Israel probably, or this was after. And so he's reflecting on what his life was before. And I can imagine he's thinking, man, I remember when I was a shepherd. I remember my job as a shepherd was to lead my sheep to places that would bring them comfort, to give them rest besides still waters. And I also remember when a bear would come, I would grab him by the nape of his, nape of his neck and kill him with my bare hands. That's a man. And he's thinking, that's my God. In the midst of my pain and struggle, that's my God. He's a good shepherd. He's a warrior. And he's for me and he fights for me and he will not leave me. So I want you to keep that image in your head as we walk through this psalm. Let's go to verse 2. I'm going to skip some stuff because I'm already behind. He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside still waters. Don't miss this one word in here. He says, my God makes me lie down in green pastures. I know you don't want to hear this because you're an American and you're an independent. <laughs> but the God that we serve sometimes makes us do things that we do not want to do for our good. For our good. He makes me lie down in green pastures. See, the shepherd makes the sheep do things that he would not do on his own because if he didn't do it on his own, he wouldn't reap the benefit of it. But I want you to hear this. There are some things that God makes us do. He makes us forgive those who come against us. He makes us repent of our sin. He makes us confess our sin. And in this text, he makes us rest because it's in the rest that he can restore your soul basically you have two options option number one ready you can lay down option number two ready you can also lay down you can lay down or you can burn out but one of the ways god is going to get us to lay down and rest because that is where he can restore our weary soul why does he make us lie down because that is where your soul may be restored. Is your soul weary this morning? Is it tired? Maybe it's because, in fact, this idea of rest, I mean, God originated it from the very beginning. On the seventh day, he rested. There's a reason that in the Ten Commandments, the Lord said, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Because what we tend to do is when we're in our deepest struggle and when we're in our deepest pain, we start to do more. We like to stay busy because when we can stay busy, then we don't think about the pain and the struggle and the depression. Man, I just can't be alone. I just can't be alone because when I'm alone, my mind just begins to wander. So I'm just going to do all these things. I'm going to avoid laying down in the green pastures that God has put before me because if I avoid it, then it's not there. Not to David. David had lots of depression, turmoil, struggle. We just saw it, and he's saying, my God makes me lie down in green pasture. See, sheep will lie down in a green pasture for one of two reasons, and I want you to hear this. Number one is because they are fully satisfied and they need nothing else. Number two is that they are completely and utterly exhausted. And often, God is saying, if you would just lay down, if you would just trust who I am, 
If you would allow me, I'm leading you to green pastures, but you try to go for all these little tufts of grass everywhere along the way in the deserts, and you just chase after them because you won't follow me. You won't lead me. And when I get you to the pasture, either you just won't lie down or you won't lie down until you're too tired. And it's the same with us. Did you know that it's not a compliment that David is reflecting upon God as his shepherd because inevitably he's making himself a sheep. And did you know that sheep are some of the dumbest animals on the planet? (laughs) There's a reason they're one of the only animals that needs a full-time employee watching them. Because when they wander, the shepherd brings them back. When the bears come, they can't defend themselves because they don't have claws or gnarly teeth. They have a bunch of wool, which they're so stupid. If they go after running water, sometimes they'll stick their head in it and their wool weighs them down. They drown. You laugh, but that's us. God's like, oh, yeah, my people. Yeah, okay. How, what, what can I think out of all that I created that would remind me of my people? Sheep. Oh, yeah, baby. But it's so beautiful because the sheep is totally dependent upon the shepherd. Totally. And when they begin to wander, things begin to happen. Verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Like I said earlier, the health of the sheep is directly tied to the care of the shepherd. I want you to think about this. For a shepherd, if a sheep comes back to his boss and it's malnourished and it has eaten for three weeks and half of the flock is gone because bears have taken them and lions have destroyed them and they're in this place that he's like, man, what in the heck happened to this, my sheep? Does that reflect on the sheep or the shepherd? The shepherd. Because it's the shepherd's job to lead the sheep. Now think of it in the other term. What if the sheep come back and, yeah, there may be some cuts because some wandered away, but the shepherd, by his staff, brought them back in, and, but they're healthy, they're nourished, they, they look good, they're strong. That also reflects on the shepherd. Some of you need to hear this this morning, that God leads us on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And if you are a representation of his care for you, he's not going to lead you someplace that's going to cause you to be destroyed because he's a good shepherd. We often wander into the valley of the shadow of death and we come back scratched, but in that valley, he is right there. I want you to hear this, that God is for you, but it's not all about you. Anyone that would die for you is completely and utterly for you. The shepherd would die for his sheep. Why? Because he is for them, but it's not about them. God loves you fiercely, but the world is just not all about you. It's for his name's sake that he leads us on paths of righteousness so that we might live a full life. See, if the health and the safety of the sheep reflects directly on the shepherd, then why would God lead you anywhere other than the places that were to give you the fullness of life? For he guards and protects his own for his name's sake. John 10.10, I have come so that you may have life and life to the full. Verse 4, and this is kind of where the tone changes. 
I want you to notice, up until this point, David has said many times, he makes me lie down, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul, he leads. And all of a sudden, he quits using this he leads word. And he said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What I'm envisioning here is David is thinking, man, God leads me to all these places, but me being a stupid sheep likes to wander and chase after these tufts of grass everywhere, and I just keep wandering and wandering, and before I know it, I find myself in this deep valley of death. Another word is a valley of deep darkness. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't allow us to be in places that that make us dependent upon him. I'm just saying David here does not say, Okay, he's leading, he's leading, he's leading. God leads me to the valley of the shadow of death, for I shall fear no evil. No, he says, I walk, in, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Why? Because even if I wandered away and found this deep valley, God is still right there, and he's still defending me with his rod, and he's still pulling me back with his staff. Why? Because he loves me. Because he's for you. Because he wants you to live the fullness of life. See, sheep are very prone to wander. (laughs) Sound familiar? (laughs) Does to me. I can just be, I mean, the other thing, crazy thing about sheep is from a long distance, they look really nice, fluffy, cuddly, and puffy, and poofy, or whatever you want to use, like groomed. The closer you get to sheep, they're like, dang, that thing is very ugly and it stinks a whole lot. (laughs) Sounds a lot like me. From afar, oh, Luke, man, his life is just perfect. Oh, really? Why don't you get a little closer and smell my armpit and, like, see me up close? Why don't you see this little zit that's popping out? But we like to look at sheep from afar. But God is saying, not me. I'm going right into the stench and I'm going right into the ugly because that's what a good shepherd does. And when they chase these other tufts of grass, when they're prone to wander from paths of righteousness, I pursue them and bring them back. And sometimes it hurts a little bit because the staff is not always pleasant, but it's for our good. I want you to hear what Isaiah says about this. Isaiah 53, 6. For we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How about the old hymn writer, Robert Roberts Robinson, said this. We just sang it. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You ever been there? If you've been there, lift your hand. Some of you have. All the others are liars. Just saying. <laughs> We're all prone to launder. We're all prone to leave the God that we love. But the shepherd's job is to lead, to protect, and to retrieve. That's what God does for us. See, as they lead, sheep, like I said, are constantly getting distracted and going their own way. But the moment they begin to wander, the moment they begin to chase things that are not good for them, that bring them, that lead them into danger, the shepherd is there to stick out his staff and bring them back. 
Now, sometimes he'll allow us to wander further than others. And that reason is because he's like, he's just not getting the message. Maybe his life needs to start falling apart and realize he's in the valley of the deepest, darkest night of his life to realize, oh, wait, maybe I need this good shepherd. Maybe I need him to protect me. Hear this, though. I'm not saying if you're in the darkest valley of your life that you wandered there all on your own and like you just chose to go there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that sometimes God will allow us to wander to get our attention, but God is for us and he's not leading us to the valley to kill us. Sometimes we think that. God, you just led me into this deepest, darkest valley and you're nowhere to be found. No, he, he's there. He's there. He's following you. He cares, as we're going to see in a second. But I just know that some people in this church are hurting deeply, and that's why we've taken a break to go into the Psalms. And you need to know this morning that if you're in the deepest, darkest valley of your life, that God is for you, and he's fighting for you, and he's comforting you if you are his sheep, not if you're a wolf. But if you're his, he is for you. He wants you, and he will protect you. David had moments where he felt he was in the valley of deep darkness too, and for some of you, you are there. Maybe you feel like God has left you. Maybe the cancer scans came back positive this week, and you thought they were gone. Maybe someone had told you one time in your life that your kids were going to return to faith, and they made some prophecy over it, and your kids haven't returned, and they're still wandering, and you're thinking that God is just an evil God who just led you to the valley of darkness because they haven't returned. Maybe there's relationship tension in your marriage or with someone else that hasn't been restored. Maybe your heart has been ripped out of your chest because of the sin of someone else. Maybe you've chosen to wander from God and you're reaping the consequences. I mean, the list could go on and on and on, but I want you to see something. It doesn't matter how you found yourself in the valley because you wandered or the valley just found you. If you are in the fold of God, God is with you. You have to preach it to yourself that he does not leave you. He does not forsake you. Because sometimes when we're walking with God, we're just like, man, God, I don't even know, but the valley just seemed to find me. Sometimes maybe the path that he's leading you on causes you to walk through a valley, but that doesn't mean he just kicked you out and said, oh, good luck, sheep. No, he's always with you in the valley, on the mountaintop. He is with you. He is fighting for you if you are his I want to see you to see something that David found his comfort in. It wasn't himself. It wasn't anything. There's two things that David found comfort in in this text. God's rod and his staff. Think about it. The rod was an offensive weapon that the shepherd would carry. The rod of the shepherd was to kill anything that came against the sheep to defend his sheep, to protect his sheep, so that when the bear came, like little mamby-pamby David, when he just grabbed a bear by the nape of his neck and just killed it with his bare hand, <laughs> he probably used the rod. The rod was to protect the sheep from anyone that was intruding. The staff, on the other hand, was to keep the sheep near to the shepherd to keep them from wandering. But in this, to strongly exert his authority, the shepherd would awfully, often gently but firmly pull the sheep back to the fold. But think about this. He could also use the crook of the staff to pull the sheep from harm. Both. 
to pull them back from wandering, but also to grab them and keep them from harm, the rod and the staff. See, the comfort that you can take comfort in this morning is the same comfort that David took comfort in, that God has a rod and a staff, and he uses them to protect and guard his sheep. But if you're a wolf, look out, because the rod is not a thing to tango with. David is saying God protects those who are his. He fights for those who are his. Even when you're in the darkest of valley, you can take comfort in the rod and the staff. See, the rod disposes of threats to his own. I want you to hear this out of Matthew 7.15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. I want you to know what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. This is a sure sign of a wolf says things in the name of God, but is contrary to the heart of God. That's a wolf. I was talking with Matt Carter one time. He's a friend and a pastor of mine. And he's like, Luke, you would not believe it. How many times a woman has come up to me and said, man, Matt, I had a dream this week that I married the wrong man. I was supposed to marry you. He said, one of them even said they were married to a Matt. And he literally, she literally told me, yeah, I, God told me in a dream and a vision that I married the wrong Matt. And Matt was like, these women, like on the outside, they seem so innocent. They seem so kind. They seem so spiritual. But wolves will always expose themselves. And in that moment, it was very clear that she was a wolf. Why? Because God is so for the marriage that anyone that would get in the way of that is a wolf. He fights for the marriage. And he's like, well, that one was an easy one. I mean, these lists could go on and on and on, but he's just saying, man, you have to be aware, but the way the test, the guide is this. I'm telling you, anyone that says things in the name of God, but is contrary to the heart of God is a wolf and it must be killed. That's not me. That's Jesus. That sounds harsh, but Jesus is saying, I kill wolves that come against my sheep. And if you're a wolf in this house, I'm just going to say I'm going to kick you out with the right foot of fellowship, baby. (laughs) Because my job is to protect the flock. God's job is to protect us. And now listen, I'm not advocating that you go kill the wolf because then you'll find yourself in prison, right? Unless you want a jail ministry, that might be a good way. But I'm not saying we kill them. I'm saying if there's something in the way of a relationship, you just need to kill it. If there's something in the way of your business, you need to kill it. If there's someone that's coming to you and sounding so spiritual and preaching these things, but it's against the heart of God, you've got to kill it. Because if you don't, God will one day because he protects his sheep and you don't want to be in the middle of it. But also take comfort in this, that if you are his sheep, he is using the rod for your good to fight for you and to protect you. I want to say one thing, that the devil is crafty. He's very crafty, and make no mistake, his desire is to kill. When Matt told me this story, it brought me honestly to Genesis 3, because the Bible says the devil is crafty, and it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not what God said, if you're familiar with the scripture. God did not say you cannot eat from any tree in the garden. He said there's 
one tree that you cannot eat of, but all the rest you're able to eat of. I mean, look at Genesis 2, starting in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you'll eat it, you shall surely die. I want you to see what happened, though, right before God says the serpent is more crafty than any others. He just creates woman out of Adam. And he says this, then the man said, this is at last is a bone of my bone and a flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Okay, so marriage was just instated. What happens the very next verse? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Deception. The devil has been trying to deceive the marriage since the very origination of it. It's his ploy. It's his plan. That's what he's done. And then I, I love the response because... Right after the devil, I mean, in fact, Jesus says, Mark 10, 9, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. But see, we have been shifting, then we begin to shift the blame, and it started in Genesis 3. Look at verse 12. Then the man said, after God approached him, and said, well, what the heck happened, guys? You ate from the tree. I told you not to. Here was their response. The man said to the woman, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, oh, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, guys, the problem is the serpent is still deceiving and we are still eating. The devil is a wolf. Anyone that is coming between the marriage is a wolf. It doesn't matter how spiritual they sound. It doesn't matter how amazing they sound. Like, this is the plan of the devil from day one. And the job of the shepherd is to kill the wolf and not pamper it. So take heart in this. He doesn't mess around with those who come against his sheep. But if you're coming against God and his plan, watch out because that's also not a good place to be. Because he fights for those who are his own. The second thing, if you're like, well, that's terrible news. Well, there's also the staff. And think about the beauty of the staff. It's a tool of love and correction to keep you from harm. He keeps those he loves close to him. And when you start wandering too far, he brings you back. But sometimes this comes with great discomfort and resistance from the sheep. It can be very unpleasant. But I want to remind you that it's for your good. And I want to remind you that even if you're in a place where you're like, man, maybe I've wandered away a little bit, I want you to see that God is not looking down his nose and saying, man, what a shame that sheep is. That's like the dirtiest of all of my flock, and he's always the one wandering away. Sometimes we view God that way. He doesn't view you that way. He says, man, look at that dirty, stinky sheep. He just needs a touch from me. He needs my love. He needs my care. Come on, sheep, let's come back. Like, you've wandered away, but that's okay. That's what my staff is for, and it's going to cause a little discomfort, but let's bring you back into the fold. Let's bring you to green pastures. Let's bring you to still waters. Let me restore your soul. But you have to trust that he is a good shepherd and remind yourself that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers and darkness and evil in this world. 
So don't be surprised when the devil is trying to attack you and steal and kill and destroy through wolves. That's how the devil works. He has always worked that way. And that's why Jesus says, I kill wolves. And so does a good shepherd. Because he fights for his people. And I really got to get going. (laughs) Because my timer in the back is telling me so. Verse 5. You prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. See, not only does he comfort and protect those who are his, but get this, he prepares a table, a feast in the presence of your enemies. Anoint your head with oil is this. It was an ancient custom of hospitality and respect that someone would show to a very highly esteemed guest. When they would come in their house, they would often anoint their head with oil, and this would have to do with fragrant perfumes. But this is what it was for. Get this, to refresh and soothe someone who was weary and maybe had traveled a long ways to partake in this table. David is saying, God is anointing my head with oil. I am his esteemed guest. He doesn't care about anyone else but me right now. I'm in his room. And not only that, he's anointing my head with oil to soothe my soul, to refresh my weary spirit. And it's right in the middle of the presence of my enemies. What's the problem with the table being in the presence of the enemies? Is they keep on talking. They say things like this. You aren't worthy to be at God's table. Are you kidding me? You think you're worthy? You're a stinky sheep. You're not worthy. You aren't an esteemed guest. He just has sympathy for you. He kind of feels bad for you, so he's prepared a table for you. His rod is not for your protection. It's actually for your destruction. You ever believe that lie? His staff is not for your correction, But it's actually just to control and manipulate you. And that's the reason he allowed you to sit at the table was so he could manipulate you more. Or how about don't forgive your spouse, believe the lies of the wolf, or he hates you, or he's in the valley to destroy you, or that relationship that's fractured. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't want you to be happy. I want you to hear something very loud and clear. Don't give the enemy a seat at the table that God has prepared for you. Even if it's in the presence of your enemies, don't believe the lies. Don't give him a voice. Preach to yourself that God is a good shepherd leading you to green pastures, put you beside still waters to restore your soul. The problem is we give the devil a seat at the table that God didn't give our enemies a seat at. Just because it's in the presence of the enemies doesn't mean they have to be present. God is saying, I have esteemed you highly. And I am a good shepherd. And I've laid a feast out before you. Will you believe me? And will you trust me? And will you eat with me? Because here's the deal. The enemy hates that you are at God's table. He hates that he is lavishing his love upon you. He hates that your cup is overflowing. He hates that God gives you what you do not deserve, a full-on mega Thanksgiving meal. And it's all been prepared for you if you are in his fold because you are highly esteemed. It doesn't matter that you stink and are dirty. It doesn't matter that you've wandered. What matters is that you are home that you're home, that God is for you, 
that he's fighting for you if you are his own. But if you're outside of his fold right now, the table is not for you. The table was purchased with the blood of Christ who hung on a cross to atone sin. All of it, all for the dirty, the sheep, the weak, those who couldn't defend themselves. He did it all so that you could sit at his table and it was purchased with his cup that was overflowing, the cup of the new covenant, his blood, his mercy, his grace. He hung there so that you could sit at his table. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. Verse 6. I love this. This is like one of my favorite parts of the whole text right here. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I want you to see something really closely. At the beginning of this, it's he leads, he leads, he leads, he leads. Then he wraps it up with, but he follows with his goodness and his mercy. See, you can trust this morning that if God is leading you, his goodness is following you. And some of you need to believe that. That even if it's the darkest valley of your life, that if God is leading you, his goodness and his mercy is also following you. He hasn't just stuck you in the valley to kill you. No, he's right there. Turn around, take comfort. That he's there for you. Exodus 14. Israel's been wandering through the desert for a very long time and they're coming to the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is going to come and God strategically places them in this place looking at the sea. But all throughout scripture leading up to this point, the text says, and they were led by a cloud by day and a fire by night. All the way, God was leading them. Sound familiar? It sounds familiar to what David was saying. But I want you to know something. What happens, and it parallels this text so beautifully, Because they're standing and all of a sudden here come the Egyptian armies and they're like, oh, great, God. I mean, you can look in the Bible. It even says, did you just bring us out of Israel because there was no graves there to bury us? Did you just bring us out of Egypt? I mean, because there was no graves there to bury us. So you brought us out here to bury us. You're just going to leave us. Yeah, they were in the valley of the shadow of death. They were in the valley of the deepest, darkest place of their life. The Egyptians are coming and they're looking at a body of water and there is no way to get across. Do you know what God did in that moment? I want you to hear what Exodus 14, 19 through 20 says. At this moment when the enemies were approaching, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them in a pillar of cloud, moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Egypt and Israel. And there was a cloud and there was darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night what did God do he moved from before them to behind them his goodness and mercy pushed them to freedom God often does not just lead us but he also follows us with his goodness and his mercy and that's why we serve such an amazing God but I want you to hear this too If you are far from God this morning, your view is, well, God doesn't care about me, and he doesn't see me, and he just flat out doesn't care. I want you to know this, that his goodness and mercy is still following you. You have just not chosen to turn around and accept it yet. His heart, his desire is that all would come to repentance, that none would perish. That's his nature. He is good. He is full of mercy. That is the gospel. So you can't say, well, God's mercy and love wasn't for me. I just wasn't the chosen one. 
No, God is good and he is merciful, but sometimes you just got to turn around and accept it because his goodness and his mercy follows David, he says, all the days of his life. How did David know he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever? This is the last part as we wrap it up because he says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How did he know his merit? No. In case you have quickly forgotten, his resume was not good. (laughs) Slept with a woman that was not his wife, ended up killing the man who was the woman's wife, and then killed many other people, and then his family fell apart, and his son raped his daughter, and then his other son killed his son, and like it just raveled out of control. Like David did not have a good resume, so it clearly was not on his merit, but on God's mercy. See, the message of the gospel is that God's goodness and mercy follow us that we need to learn to preach the message of the cross to ourselves because the devil is preaching your failures to you. He's telling you you're unworthy. And you know what I say? Say, you're right, devil. I am unworthy. But that's the beauty of the gospel is it is for unworthy people, period. So I will choose to believe that God is good And I will choose to believe that he is fighting for me. And I will choose to believe that you, devil, you're a wolf. And guess what his rod does? Slugs you every time. And guess what it has done? He crushed you under his foot. And he has already defeated you when when he defeated death. So I'm no longer bound to sin because Jesus has conquered it. To which I say, if the devil is telling you you can't believe because you're unworthy, you're in great company for every disciple of Christ the world has ever seen because we're all unworthy. Every one of us is unworthy of the goodness of God. As we wrap up, I was watching a clip from Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish preacher. His accent is amazing, by the way. I heard him in Southwestern. He came and did a thing. I love Alistair Begg, but... He was preaching this powerhouse sermon and about preaching the gospel to yourself, some of what we talked about last week. And one of the most hilarious things about this whole video to me is like he's preaching like this powerhouse sermon. He's got this choir behind him. He's in a Presbyterian church, which nothing against Presbyterians. I went to a Presbyterian church. But I'm like looking at this choir and he's preaching the greatest message ever. And it was like the frozen chosen just sitting there like. And I was thinking, man, if you were saved, you ought to told your face that. Because it sure doesn't look like it. But he's preaching this powerhouse sermon, and he's talking about how we quickly begin to rely on our works and our merit, being a clean sheep. And he asked this question. If you were asked the spring break question, the spring break question of all spring break questions, if you were to die tonight, would you get entry into heaven? What would you say? And he said this, and it's stunning. He said, if I were to answer that question in the first person, I would have immediately gone wrong because I did this, because I believed that, because I came to God. He said, you would have immediately gone wrong. He said, the only proper answer is in the third person because he, because what he has done, because he is worthy, because he is worthy of my life and my praise. I did nothing. I was unworthy. He was worthy. He drew me in and I responded to his goodness and love, but it's all about him. And then he goes on to say, look at the thief on the cross. If you're new to church the thief on the cross there was two of them and jesus was hung on the middle cross and there was a thief on each side and one thief was saying hey jesus if you're really god how about you pull yourself off of there and save yourself and save us too while you're at it 
And the other thief looks at him and says, are you kidding me? This guy's done nothing wrong. Like we deserve death. This man in the middle does not. And then he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, surely, surely, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Alistair goes on and says, I can't wait to ask this thief one day, man, you got to tell me about that moment. Like you got to tell me, how did all that shake out for you? He said, you've never been to a Bible study in your entire life. You never gave a dime to the tithe, and you didn't know anything about church membership. You didn't even know what the, you didn't know nothing. How in the heck, how did that shake out for you? And then he says this, then he says, I just imagine he gets to heaven, and he's standing at the pearly gates, and the first angel comes up and says, oh, hey, welcome, welcome to heaven. Um, said, how did you make it here? And the thief says, I don't know. And he's like, what do you mean you don't know? He's like, I don't know. And he's like, well, I, if you don't know, I don't know how to like address you. So he turns around, and he goes and gets his supervisor and probably the archangel comes back and asks the same question. How'd you get here? And he says, let me ask you a few questions. And he says, are you clear on justification by faith? And the thief's like, huh? Justification by what? Uh, in fact, justification, what? I don't, I don't know, never heard of it in my life. And he says, well, what about the doctrine of Scripture? Uh, no idea, completely confused, sir. I don't know what you're talking about. He says, well, what about the sinner's prayer? Mm. What's that? <laughs> sinner's prayer? I was a thief, man. I was hanging on a cross beside this Jesus guy. I never prayed in my life. And the angel says, then on what basis are you here? And you know what he said? The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the gospel. It has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with your prayer or your words. It has nothing to do with sitting in the chairs of a church your entire life. And it has nothing to do with you earning your salvation. It has everything to do with God said that his goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life. And if you will turn around and accept that, and if you will just say, I don't know. All I know is that what Jesus paid for, I believed and I owned it. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that when Jesus hung on the cross, it counted for me. Why? Because the man on the middle cross said I could come if I believed. That's the gospel. But we get it all jacked up. We get it all sorts of jacked up and we think it's all about us. If the band wants to come up, we're going to wrap it up. See, here's the gospel. Is that I was prone to wander, but the good shepherd brought me near. I wandered into the valley of deep darkness but a shepherd brought me comfort in the middle of the valley. I was totally undeserving, but for some reason he prepared a feast for me. He anointed my head with oil and esteemed me highly, and it had nothing to do with me but everything to do with him. All I did was accept the gift. Have you accepted the gift? See, the man on the middle cross goes after sheep who wander. The man on the middle cross makes you lie down in green pastures. The man on the middle cross, he leads you beside still waters. The man on the middle cross, he restores your soul. The man on the middle cross, he leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
The man on the middle cross, he walks with you in the valley of the shadow of death. Even in your darkest moments, he's there. The man on the middle cross, he comforts you with his rod and his staff. The man on the middle cross prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. The man on the middle cross, he follows you with goodness and mercy. Have you ever turned around to see it or accept it? The man on the middle cross, he desires that you dwell with him forever. So my question is, do you know the man on the middle cross? Not with the theological grounds of, oh yeah, I got it because the Bible says it and I grew up in kids ministry. No, do you know him? Like, do you believe him the way that the Bible says, pastuo, believe, faith, do you believe? Like with a gut-wrenching, like there is no doubt. I, yes, I may have some doubts, but let me tell you, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is fear. Many men in scripture had doubts, but they chose to run after Jesus despite their doubts, and they chose to not let their fear consume them, but to run to Jesus that he would conquer their fear. Do you know that you know that you know that the man on the middle cross pursued you and hunted you down, that his goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life? And that, do you know that? But here's the thing, you can know it and not receive it. You can know it and not accept it. God is for you. He desires that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. But you have to come to a moment where you accept that I don't know, but I believe that the man on the middle cross has set me free because I believed in who he was and what he said he came to do to set me free, to atone for my sin, and to walk with me in the deepest, darkest valley of my life. If you know this man on the middle cross, take heart that he's with you. Take heart that in the deepest valley, the darkest valley, he is walking with you. Take heart that his rod is to protect you and his staff is to guide you. If you don't know the man on the middle cross, be very, very worried because the rod is not protecting you. The rod is fighting against you. One day you will stand before God and no answer is sufficient other than Jesus, I believed. But hear this, if you are far from God, the rod can go from a weapon to your protection in a moment. All you have to do is believe that when Jesus hung on the cross, it counted for you. It's the beauty of the gospel. That you didn't earn it and you can't earn it you turned around and you turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, take my sin and I give you my life, not just as Savior, but as Lord. When it's both, salvation has come into this house today. And there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous who do not need to. But that's the gospel. God, I thank you that you are good. And God, I pray this morning, as there are many people in this room that are hurting, they would lean into you, that they would take comfort, God, in your rod and your staff, that you fight for them and protect them and kill the enemy as he comes against them, God, but you also rein them in and you keep them from wandering, and while it may cause some discomfort and it may hurt, it's for their good. Would they believe that this morning, that you are the good shepherd, that they shall not want, God, because you have fully satisfied and God, for someone in this room, maybe that is far from you, God, would you really reach into the depths of their heart this morning and show them for the first time that you are a God that fiercely loves them 
that mercy and compassion and goodness have been following them, God. They just have chosen not to accept it. And I pray this morning that you would, that they would turn around, that they would come to you, and that they would say, the man on the middle cross has set me free, not because of what I deserved and not because I was worthy, but because I was unworthy, and I chose to believe in him as my Savior, my Lord, and my King. God, would you do that in this place? Thank you that you're a good shepherd and that you walk with us, with me, a dirty sheep, God, yet you still choose to love and protect and guide and direct, and I thank you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.